So we're reading Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 1. So Deuteronomy 6. This is the command, the statutes and ordinances. The Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, so that you may follow them in the land you're about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands I am giving you, your son and your grandson, and so that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that he would give you, a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, Cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, worship him and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of the earth. Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massa. Carefully observe the commands of the Lord your God, the decrees and statutes he has commanded you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that you may prosper and so that you may enter and possess the good land the Lord your God swore to your fathers by driving out all your enemies before you, as the Lord has said. When your son asks you in the future, what is the meaning of the decrees, statutes and ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Before our eyes, the Lord inflicted great and devastating signs and wonders on Egypt, on Pharaoh and on all his household. But he brought us from there in order to lead us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. The Lord commanded us to follow all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our prosperity always and for our preservation, as it is today. 
righteousness will be ours if we are careful to follow every one of these commands before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. This is God's word to us. It's really great to be here with you today. My name's Isaac. I would love to chat with you after the service. Uh, Thank you, Ian, for that great reading. I loved your emphasis on the word listen throughout. He really kind of knew what was going on because that word listen is so significant in this passage. And even it's the way that Jews remember this passage. See, the Hebrew word for listen or hear is Shema. And so Jewish people would call this the Shema part of the Bible. And for thousands of years, Jews have cherished the Shema. Do you know, every morning and every night, most Jews would say this prayer. They cherish it. They repeat it day in and day out. It's basically become the first creed of God's people, these words. And in most manuscripts, you you kind of read through the manuscript, and the letters right at the start of this passage and at the end are large And that's to tell you, make sure you read this precisely. This is so important. You must read this clearly. And these words, they're often uttered for the first time to children, the first thing that you teach kids, and also the first or the last thing you say on your deathbed. See, these words are so valued and precious to Jews. It's mind-blowing, and it's a challenge for us to have these words in our heart like that. And today I hope we take on the Shema for ourselves because they're just as relevant for us today. See, the the reason that we listen today is found in verse 4. I would love it if you're kind of following along as we go through it. Um, I do agree with Adele. She mentioned that it's sort of a plain part of God's word, but how good is it? It's it's rightfully plain. I hope hope that it's going to be good for us today as we're reminded of our love for God Now, verse 4, Moses gives a reason which drives the instruction that follows. He says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And guess what? That hasn't changed. God is still one. There is no other. He has made the universe. He deserves all glory. And so we heed the instruction of this passage to love God wholeheartedly. And look, I think we can resonate with many Jewish people who cherish this part of God's word, their their strict um, kind of um, value that they give to the Shema. Yet in Judaism, people would often cite this passage and they'd say this shows that God cannot be Trinity, right? It shows that God is one, that he can't be these three persons in one. Now, we would gladly agree that the text speaks of one God, yet we're convinced that the whole of God's word, all of God's revelation to us, shows us God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Now, if this is a live question for you, I would love to talk to you after the service. I'm sure anyone who's come up on stage today would love to talk to you about God and how this works, this, uh, this real mystery. Now, it's helpful for us to see that the declaration, the Lord is one, is particularly about challenging the culture that they're in. They're in, they're in this uh, part of the world where there is just all of these religions, all of these gods and goddesses. Like, Just think about the Egyptians and the many gods and goddesses they worshipped. But the worship of one god made the faith of the Hebrews unique, made it special. So let's get stuck into the message of the Shema. This is what it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with your, all your strength. See, in Israel had already been promised God's love for them in Exodus 20. He, God had already said, look, I'm going to give you uh, my love if you follow me, if you uh, love me. So these words here, they're almost like a rehashing of God's commitment to them. And let's remember for a moment that Israel, they've been spending many years in really in disobedience from God. They've been wandering in the desert and for so much of that time, they had rejected God, and so much that God actually rejected them from entering into the promised land, that whole generation. Yet God remains merciful. He, he lets this new generation go in. God has poured out so much love on them. And so here, the people are commanded to respond to God with the love that he has shown them, with this covenant love as he first loved them. And to understand these words, we, we need to realize that it's talking about more than just feeling and affection. It certainly involves emotion, but it's more than that. And we also should consider at the start here that this command is for us too. See, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? You might be familiar. He answered with these words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Love is still the greatest. It's the hallmark of Christianity, of what it means to follow God. And when the whole Old Testament law is summed up in just one word, well, some things never change. Love is still the greatest for us. So what would the Israelites, as they were saying this Shema, as they recited that, what would they have been thinking about? What did it mean for them? Well, it meant their all-out, their total devotion to God. This statement of loving God, it's about action. See, along with Israel, we're being commanded to love with our whole selves. But to love, we must first listen. Then we can obediently Love the Lord God. Now, when I read a, a book at the end of the night to my nephew, uh, I want him to listen, right? I want him to, to realize that this is the last book. I'm not going to read another book about dinosaurs or cars. I'm only there every now and then, and still, I don't want to read another book about dinosaurs or cars. But I want much more than that. I want to see an obedience from him, right? He's like, okay, this is the last book. Great. I can do that. But even more than that, I want him to obey out of a love for me, out of a, a trust that, okay, he, he's got the best for me. He cares for me. Now, that might be a, a high bar that I'm setting there, but uh, in a similar way, if we're truly listening to God, 
we'll obey what he says, and we won't do it begrudgingly. We'll do it out of an affection for God. See, the love we're instructed in this passage begins in the heart, and then it moves outward into our entire life. Notice heart, soul, and strength. And you might have thought about this before and wondered, why are there these different... You know, what's the difference between the heart and the soul? Or how do we possibly love God with our strength? When I first thought of this instruction, I kind of thought it was saying to love God in the different parts of you, in all the parts of what it means to be a human. You know, in your heart, in your soul, uh, wherever you might find the soul, right? And to somehow love him in, in your biceps, in your strength as well. But it's really, see, I think there's a uh, diagram, there we go. That's sort of how I thought about this passage. That there's sort of these different areas of being human and this is what it means to love God in these different compartments. But I think it's really more like this. There's another um, picture there. It's sort of from the inside moving to our whole selves and our whole influence in life. See, the heart. That's really a word that talks about, it can actually be both mind and emotions. So where we feel things and where we think things. And the soul, well, that, that word, it's translated, it also means breath. So becoming you know, a living being when Adam and Eve, they had breath into them. So soul, it means being a relating being. See, beginning with the inner self, he now moves on to the whole person the way that we relate to others. So what's going on with loving God with our strength? You know, is it tight hugs? Is it, you know, love letters in all caps? How do we love with all of our strength? Well, it's talking about all of our available resources, all of our possessions, all of our health, maybe our whole household, everything that makes up us. We're to love God with all of it. So the Shema, it isn't exactly an instruction to love God in different parts of your body. It's saying love God with everything you've got. Whatever it is, love him. See, the Shema for Israel gave them a constant reminder to devote themselves to God, to be committed to him, that they were going to be faithful to God, even if it meant sacrificing so much for him. So let's, t- let's take that on for ourselves. May our whole selves be devoted to the God who's devoted to us. But does such you know, an all-encompassing love seem realistic to you today? I'm not sure how you've come along to church today. I suspect that there are a lot of people with us who even just the thought, the concept of love for you today might be hard to stomach. The thought of committing your entire self to God might even feel like a weight that's just too heavy to bear. How do we listen to God again? How do we love him again with this deep kind of affection? How might we cut through the noise of everyday life? You know, we all know love doesn't just happen. We've got to work hard at it with our friends, with our family. We've got to be diligent. So is this command to love God with everything, is this within our reach? Or is it too hard? Well, I think we know that we need God's grace in all of this. It is ultimately out of our reach. We can't entirely obey this command. But we still can, with the help of the Spirit, live into it 
And that's actually what we'll spend most of our time, or the rest of our time today, is thinking about how we can uh, be devoted to this God. We'll reflect on a few practical methods that this passage gives to grow our devotion to God. So we need to remember God's grace. And that's something, if we remember God's grace, we'll nurture our devotion to him. See, devotion to him is only possible by recognising all that he's given to us. And it kind of makes me laugh that the moments for myself where my affections for God are most stirred is when I realise how much I fall short of this greatest command. When I realise that I haven't loved him with everything. When we see how much of our hearts still need to belong to him. When we see his grace most clearly, that's when we love him most. We start to really get the many ways God has shown his grace to us. And that stirs in our hearts. Now Moses, he speaks of this idea in verse 10. Uh, He's preparing these people for when they go into this land. It's a land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey and prosperity and blessing. He's saying, look, you're going to receive blessing after blessing And you need to realize you did not work for it. It's all a gift from God. He says they'll find cities they did not build, houses full of good things they did not fill, cisterns they did not dig, vineyards and olives they did not plant. And finally, verse 12, Be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Moses warns them, Do not forget the Lord who's done all this for you. He coaches them to trust in God's gracious gracious provision. He's basically saying, look, be different to your parents. Realize that God has given you all of this grace. And he's telling them there's danger ahead. And the danger, it's not necessarily in the enemies that are occupying the land that they're about to go into. Like He could have mentioned that, right? But the danger that Moses speaks of, there's two. The danger of prosperity and the danger of hardship. See, prosperity can tempt God's people to forget that they've been saved out of slavery. They can get so wrapped up in their new land, their new house, their new vineyards. You know, you can just imagine it. People are so prone to forget in times of prosperity and run after idols. And that's what he tells them. Verse 14, do not follow other gods. The gods of the peoples are around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. And for many of us, we face the same temptation, right? We have so much. In general, here in Sydney, we have so much. And so much ability to run after idols. To fill every moment with other things and just push God to the periphery. But the Israelite community, they also knew the danger of forgetting God when they endured hardships. I mean, think about the many years they had wandered in the desert, just how difficult that would have been. And yet, time after time, they grumbled and they lost their hope in God. Understandably, right? Verse 16, Moses warns them, Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massah. See, Moses, he's referring to a moment where the people, they're all grumbling. They're getting really annoyed at him. They're getting annoyed at God. They, they, tell, um, they, they start saying to Moses, look, why have you brought us out here? We're just going to die in the desert. So Moses, he strikes this rock and he provides 
our drink for them, provision for the people. See, the hardships they were going through, it was clearly a temptation to grow cold in their love for God. Not only to grow cold, but to even blame and to hate God. So as the Israelites are standing here on the edge of the promised land, about to head into this new era, they need to remember God's grace to stay devoted to him. They must reflect on every good gift from above and give him thanks readily. And we need to do that as well, right? We need to recognize we've been redeemed. Uh, We might not have been under a pharaoh. We might not have been um, redeemed from Egypt, but we've been redeemed from the rule of sin, of sin and the rule of Satan in our lives. We have been brought out into the light, into the freedom of knowing Christ. I hope you're utterly convinced that this life of following Jesus is the good life. He tells us that he's come for us to have life and life to the full, following him. So we've been redeemed from that, you know. Imagine as a dark cave of, of life without Christ. We've been redeemed from that old way. So as we start to feel, you know, the rays of sun on our skin again and the joy of knowing Jesus, might we joyfully devote ourselves to him rather than to other idols or other things that might get our attention. See, we've seen that loving devotion to God only comes from seeing the grace that he's given us. But how else does this passage instruct us to be devoted to God? It has lots of wisdom for us. Well, we're to repeat. We're to repeat in order to nurture our devotion to God. See, Moses, he made it clear that these words from God must be repeated in their everyday life. It's through repetition that these words can occupy their heart. This is what verse 7 says. Talk about them, speaking about the, uh, the law of God. Talking about them when you sit in your house and you walk and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. See, part of how the people of God would properly listen and love God was by taking these words and covering it in their life. You can see some examples here about how they actually did that. You know, these Jews would seek to apply the word of God in this way. Uh, During morning prayer, the people would place uh, this this box on their head. And this happens even up to uh, modern times. Many people will place this box. I think it's called, what is it, phylactery. Uh, And the box has, you know, scriptures and God's word inside of it. And attached to the box is that sort of Roman armband looking thing. Uh, I can't remember what the name is for that. But they have this all bound to them to show that they're bound to God's law. And this, this instruction, it was meant as a physical reminder of the words of God. You know, it's pretty hard to, to forget when you're wearing these things. And as the Israelites were about to enter the promised land, these instructions were given so that they would stand out, so they'd be distinct. But it's particularly for their own personal devotion to God. They were given so that they might have their affections stirred for him. It was a worship thing. And Jesus, he even speaks into this exact practice. And he helps us understand and to apply it now. Matthew 23 is where he says, 
Uh, everything they do, so he's speaking of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus says everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Uh, and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. See, Jesus, he's rebuking how they've used these practices to exalt themselves. It's not about a worship thing any longer. What was originally meant to stir their devotion for God has been used just to be praised by people. So for us now, look, we take the principle of repeating God's word as something that's useful for us now to dwell on his word, to have it seep down into our heart. And yet we're warned by Jesus that these practices should never be done to exalt ourselves above others. And even maybe our practices of repetition, if people can see those, maybe that could, should cause us some cause to reflect. See, devotion to God is far more than simply learning and repeating some rote responses. It's got to start with, it's, it's grounded in the relationship we have with God, full of grace. And yet we're not to neglect this practice, right? Uh, I would love to encourage you to take hold of Scripture and even change up your daily routine to go over the same passage at times. I've done that many times in my life where I've realized a passage, you know, I needed to, to, to know it, to believe it. Uh, it spoke so clearly to me in that point in time. So I would just go back to it day after day for a whole week. I'd encourage you to do that or intentionally seeking to put a passage to memory. Uh, in our youth and kids programs, this is a, a kind of staple, right? And we sort of don't do it as much um, when we get old enough. Uh, but you know, even recently, we've, we've put, we put, um, you can talk to me afterwards if you like, we put a uh, verse from Scripture to a Dua Lipa song. And it's just stayed in my head, and, and it's there. So I'll talk to you later if you want to hear about that one. And not now, I'm not going to sing that. <laughs> See, we need these spiritual disciplines of, of memorizing Scripture uh, so that it demands our attention in everyday life. Because there's just so many noises, isn't there? There's so much trying to get our attention in life. So let's hold on to Scripture every day. And it might be, you know, just starting today by writing down a Scripture on a sticky note and putting it somewhere at home or putting it in your, your phone, somewhere that you can keep coming back to that same Scripture or on your computer. See, I often go through phases of time where I just keep going over these same scriptures and I end up talking about it with others and it's just, it is so good. So I'd love to encourage you, maybe even today, to pick a scripture you could do that with. See, there's one last practice that, that Moses, he instructs the people so they might be devoted to God. And it's not only, not only for their own devotion, but for others as well. It's to pass the baton on, pass the baton on to the next generation. See, teaching younger people about what God has done and said is what they need. They need that to be devoted to God. We can't expect to kind of leave them for so many years and out of nowhere they'll have this amazing affection for God. There's so much need for children and youth to hear from wise adults about what it means to be devoted to God and to help them sift through their many questions, right? Now you see this idea in the passage in verse 20. When your sons ask you in the future, what's the meaning of the decrees, the statutes and the ordinances 
I just laugh thinking of a child saying the word ordinance, but there you go. That the Lord our God has commanded you. Tell him, we were slaves in Pharaoh, slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. You can just imagine the campfire stories, right? As they spoke about what happened in Massa, as they spoke about their wandering in the desert, of all that God had done for them. See, Moses sees the great urgency, the need there is to speak of the history and to speak of the moral instruction to this younger generation. And in this passage, we see the focus remains on parents to speak with their children. I think throughout Scripture we see this, the primary role that that parents have, mums and dads and those caring in the household, right? To share and to disciple with their children. But I'm sure that many of you here who have children, you, you know that you can't provide every need that your, your kids have. It's such a gift to have the church of God all on about caring and helping the next generation to be devoted to God. See, suddenly children end up with many diverse adults with different experiences, different ways of answering questions to help them along their way. See, parents now, you, you guys are still tasked with this primary role of discipling your children. But the role of other adults in the church, it, it's been elevated in the New Testament uh, in quite an amazing way. See, the whole church is described as a family. And that's to impress on us this idea that as a community, we take on the responsibility to bring a child up in Jesus. It's not just on a mum or a dad. What a relief that is. And it's such a joy. See, as someone who gets to spend heaps of my week with youth particularly, I I just love it that I get to pass this baton on time and time again. I just want to remind us how good it is to share the gospel, even if they're not your children, and to to kind of feel that sense of responsibility and opportunity we have. See, they're so curious and hungry to know about God. And I think about it like the person who, who doesn't know anything about their ancestry. You know, they, they're not sure where they're from. And they ask their mum and dad all the questions. They're like, where are we from? Tell me everything. That's often what it feels like with these youth and children. They want to know. They want to know about what happened in the desert, right? So today, let's consider how we can pass the baton on to the next generation. And that could be, look, after the service, Talking to a kid or a youth that you, maybe you haven't chatted to much before and asking them, what did you learn about today? Keen to hear it. They may not have much to tell you, but starting a conversation would be great. And maybe you can even talk about it amongst yourselves about what could be a good way to show that we care about that next generation. And it's been such a joy for me. I've spent lots of time with parents uh, in homes. Often we've brought kind of youth leaders to families or they've come to my house. And it is the best. Seeing these worlds overlap and seeing everyone just on about the same thing on the same team is just such a joy to me. And friends, like passing you know, a baton on in a relay, there's this window of opportunity, right? Uh, in a relay, it's a very short window of opportunity, it must be said, but... We have this window of opportunity with young ones to share them uh, about Jesus and to help them form their faith. So let's make the most of this so they might be all out devoted to God. And the beauty of it is that for us, it actually helps our faith as well. You know, we've, we've thought about how we repeat 
We don't always need new lessons and new things to learn, but we repeat it for ourselves. And the act of teaching the next generation helps stir our hearts towards, the, towards God as well. Uh, how good is this passage? May we all come to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and strength. Let me pray that we might do that. Dear Lord, as we consider this command, we recognise how, how much we often fall short, uh, that we, our love is often cold, and yet, Lord, we, we trust that this command is within our reach. You've uh, poured out your spirit so that we might love you and respond in a committed, uh, covenant kind of love to you. Uh, Lord, we do pray that this week you'd help us to do that. And particularly as we consider how we might encourage the next generation to be devoted to Jesus as well. Give us great motivation, give us great joy to do this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.